Well, thank you very much, Helen, for that introduction. And thank you also for inviting me to come and speak at your conference down in Wales. Um, the theme or title of this conference is Exploring Freedom and Control in Global Higher Education. And what I'd like to do is to explore that through two lenses. The first is the contribution that universities make to the formulation of public policy. And in and of itself, that is not that uncontroversial. Um, the second issue, which is more controversial, is how that perspective is beginning to change in the light of what some people have called post-truth politics. And some of you have noted last month that the Oxford English Dictionary um, made the word post-truth its word of the year. Um, seems to me post-truth is two words, but um, let's not quibble. Um, so, given that, um, I think it's also important that I should just caveat um, my remarks by saying that I am not disinterested in this argument. I'm a passionate, absolutely passionate believer in pro-truth politics. And if we as universities don't stand up for pro-truth, then what is the role of the university? And that's going to be kind of my big question running through this talk. I should also acknowledge at the outset that I'm somewhat of an expert, and I use that word absolutely deliberately, I'm an expert on the first point. Um, I understand the role of research in policymaking. I am not an expert on the second point. Um, since the referendum debate and the results of the referendum around the EU in this country in June, I found myself really trying to understand what had happened and have done lots of reading around it, but I wouldn't claim to be an expert. So some of my thoughts are half-baked, and I'm very happy for those to be challenged. But it does seem to me that in the light of Brexit, in the light of Trump, in the light of the election in Italy um, earlier this week, last week, there is a threat to the role of universities in society. And as a sector and as a community, we need to recognize that threat. We need to engage and analyze that threat, see if that threat is real or not, and potentially adapt to it. And I don't want this to be a political lecture. It's very easy for this to drop into politics. Um, and what I'll try to do is to back all this up through data and evidence and rely on analysis and policy analysis in making my claims. So with that in mind, let me begin with some data. For those of you who are not familiar with the UK system, we have a near quinquennial review of research excellence. In 2014, the Research Excellence Framework, or REF as we like to call it, included for the first time the assessment of the impact universities were having on society. And impact, research impact, was defined as any effect on change or benefit to the economy, society, culture, public policy or services, health, the environment or quality of life beyond academia. That's a mouthful. You try saying that in one breath. But the two key words in that statement are those last two words, beyond academia. This is the impact, the research impact that universities make beyond the academic system. And to assess that impact, the universities submitted across this country something like 7,000 impact case studies 
each around four pages in length. And these case studies were graded by peer review panels, and those grades contributed to the size of the block grant that universities in the UK will get for the next five to six years. So those universities that demonstrated higher social impact received more money. And that inclusion or that financial incentive was actually crucial for this being an effective policy intervention. So I was lucky enough to, um, or unlucky enough, um, to win the contract to analyse those 7,000 case studies in collaboration with colleagues at King's and a company called Digital Science. I say unlucky because we were given four months to do this um, analysis. Um, the joys of doing policy research, you're never given enough time. So we had to adopt various text mining technologies where we examined the words and word patterns in those case studies. We couldn't qualitatively read and analyze 7,000 case studies. So to illustrate that, we actually extracted out all the words in those case studies. And there was something like six million words in those case studies. And if you removed what people call the stop words, that's words like and and but and what have you, um, you get around four million words. So there are four million, if you like, meaningful words which you can analyze. There are about 100,000 unique words and around 20,000 words that are mentioned 10 or more times. And this word cloud captures the most frequently mentioned 684 words. The bigger the word, the more often it is mentioned. And by chance, and it is by chance, the word policy is one of the biggest words bang in the middle of this word cloud. We, however, employed more sophisticated methods than just counting words. And counting words actually turned out to be more difficult than it sounds. Um, and this is one of my favorite figures of all time. Um, and I keep on promising myself I'm going to turn this into a tie, um, because I think it would be a fabulous tie, but I've yet to get around to doing that. And let me just explain it um, to you. In the middle here, we have the so-called units of assessment, which are effectively departmental groupings. If you think about departments in your institutions. And we've color-coded them so that the sort of up, pinkish color up here are the life sciences, the biology, veterinary research, and what have you. The next group is the physical and engineering sciences. The third group is the social sciences. And the fourth green group are the humanities. On the left-hand side, we have fields of research. So using an automated algorithm, we allocated the underpinning research to various fields. And we had around 150 fields we could allocate that to. And then on the right-hand side, we used a method called topic modeling, which is quite a sophisticated analytical method used in text mining, to look for word clusters. And where we found those word clusters, we defined those as impact topics. And we generated something like 60 impact topics. So for somebody like me, who's spent about 20 years trying to think about and analyze impact, I was absolutely taken aback that we generated 60 impact topics, because I typically, up to now, have always talked about six or seven impact topics. So my 15 years of work gets thrown out the window um, straight away. But the important thing for me in this slide is the number of lines in it. We have something like 13,000 lines. We have something like 4,000 unique lines. So when we talk about the pathways to impact, when we talk about how research moves from the universities where you spend your day job into broader society, the outside world, each one of those pathways is effectively unique. So when it comes to public policy, we have to 
really understand the importance of that uniqueness. Two of the largest topics, which you can't see in this figure, were informing public policy and parliamentary scrutiny. So here I've taken those two topics, presenting the same information. So around the outside here, we have the units of assessment, color-coded, as I mentioned, for those two um, topics. And here we have the contribution different disciplines are making. And the sort of important point to take from this figure is that we can see that the majority of academic disciplines are contributing to government policy or parliamentary scrutiny. And that moves me on to my first sort of, or first two, if you like, take-home messages. The first, which I think is really important, is that universities are making a significant contribution to public policy in the UK and one suspects elsewhere, and that that contribution is multidisciplinary. And I'll come back to that point towards the end of my talk. So if we talk about the supply of evidence from universities, we have good evidence that universities are supplying that evidence. They're making a contribution to public policy. But is that matched by a demand from the politicians? So another one of my favorite slides. It's not often you get Tony Blair into a talk. Um, the first quote here um, was actually from the 1997 New Labour Manifesto. And this is the front cover of the New Labour Manifesto, for those of you who can't recall. And it talked about... What counts is what works. And for the historians amongst you, in that passage, he's actually referring, or the Labour Party is referring to Clause 4 and the idea to ditch Clause 4 in favour of privatisation. But that phrase, what works is what counts, has become sort of almost symbolistic of the early years of New Labour and their commitments to evidence-based policymaking. And indeed, in this country now, we have what works networks which you can trace back to this um, language and this um, manifesto of 1997. But this is neither a political point nor an old point. You can see the second quote here from David Cameron in 2003 um, effectively says, health policy can become evidence-based. And the final point down here, which is in 2016, this year, we will put evidence at the heart of what we do. So politicians are asking for evidence, they're asking for data, they're asking for research, they're asking for help from us, and we need to recognise that. I'm going to come back to this last quote later on in my talk, so if you can memorise it or sort of have it there as you're thinking about it, do so. So let me move on a bit and then say that this, this sort of political commitment is also a very, very messy process. I was asked last night, why did I include the word sausage in my title? Um, part of it's marketing. Um, the fact that I get asked means it was successful. Um, but there is a great quote by um, Otto von Bismarck, who sort of is the um, father, if you like, of modern civil servants. And he is alleged to have said that law and sausages are two things you do not want to be seeing made. And the same can be said for policy. We have these different ingredients in this policy-making machine. We have experience, traditions, judgment, expertise, habits, resources. Any of you who've dealt with policy-making, you've met civil servants, you've met politicians, you will know that that's true for every single bit of policy. The fact that we did it this way last year means we're going to do it this way next year. Yeah, that is habit. People are constrained by resources. People bring their political values to the policy-making process. 
appropriately. That is democracy, after all. That is what we want. So we've got to be very careful when we talk about research and policy, when we talk about evidence and policy, that we are not being too instrumental. We need to understand that it is a messy process. It is a sausage-making machine. Then if we sort of drop into that, we also know from research that the ingredient evidence, focusing on, on that single ingredient, has different notions to different people. So there's some brilliant work by Jonathan Lomas a number of years ago now, draws out how policymakers will see evidence as being colloquial. They see it as being reasonable, as being timely, as having a clear message. And then you ask scientists and researchers, what do they see as evidence? And they have a different view. They see it as being scientific. They want it to be empirical. They want it to be appropriately caveated. So we have these fundamentally different notions in the way that we are talking about evidence. And then if we take that a bit further, we also know from various pieces of research that evidence is used in different ways. So Steve Haney picks up on some great work done by Carol Weiss in the 1970s, which some of you are probably familiar with, talking about different models of the way that research is used in that policy-making process. And when we talk about research and evidence-based policy-making and all the stuff I've mentioned so far, most of us are probably thinking about that knowledge-driven model. We are thinking about a situation where you as a researcher, you as an academic, do your piece of research and you go and find the policymaker and you hand the research to the policymaker. And you sort of go, job done, I'm off, bye. It's now your job, it's not my responsibility. If only it was that easy. It is really, really not. It, that does occur, but it is the minority of times that does occur. And we need to understand, if you like, that in practice, the use of research and policymaking adopts all these different models, and it's really, really hard to predict which model is going to be adopted. And then finally, moving on, that given that, given that we have different notions, given that they're different models, there are also different sort of barriers, if you like, to the way that evidence is used in policymaking. So Catherine Oliver um, quite recently did a, a fabulous literature review pulling all this data together and identified these sets of barriers to the use of evidence in the policy-making process and a set of facilitators. And that's coming out of the literature. And the way I like to sort of conceptualize this is, is around these three T's of translation, trust, and timing. Now, if we take translation, um, here's a shocking comment to make. The language of academic discourse is very, very peculiar. If you don't believe me, take the paper you've just presented in this conference and give it to somebody who does not work in academia. We speak in a bizarre language that nobody understands. And therefore, we have to translate that. And it's our responsibility to translate it, not anybody else's responsibility to translate it. If we want our information, our thoughts, our evidence, our research to make a difference, we have to make it accessible. Now, my partner is a translator. So a number of years ago, I saw this great book on translation. So I gave it to her as a Christmas present. And as with the best Christmas presents, you end up reading it yourself. Um, so this book by Umberto Eco, somewhat bizarrely, looks at the whole issue of translation. And in reading it, one of the quotes which I sort of took out of it was this quote here. Translation is always a shift not between two languages, but between two cultures or two encyclopedias. A translator must take into account rules that are not strictly linguistic, but are broadly speaking cultural. 
And that is our job as translators of our research. A lot of what we need to do is to localize, contextualize, and make and adopt to the culture within which we're working. So if I drop back to the final um, issue here, um, Catherine, I, I sort of um, use the word trust to capture some of what Catherine's talked about. And I think that relationship between the researcher and the policymaker is a very subtle one, and it works on very, very different types of incentives. Again, think about your interactions with policymakers. Why do they work? What's going on in those relationships? They're quite deep, they're quite meaningful, they're quite subtle. And to overcome some of those challenges around incentives, around timelines, around the things of um, different notions of evidence, we've got to learn to work together. We've actually got to sit down together. We've got to understand one's motivations and we've got to understand one's needs. And that takes time and that takes effort. Um, but if you don't have trust, if the person you're working with in the policy community does not trust you, I can absolutely assure you, your research will have no impact. That trust is absolutely crucial to making that difference. So the final T um, in this list is timing. And policymakers often use the phrase, a window of opportunity. How many of you have heard that phrase, a window of opportunity? And it is a moment that you can influence the policy process. And that moment is as unpredictable as it is short. So you may have done all your research, but if you don't hit that window of opportunity, again, it's not going to make a contribution. And if you think about it, the way that we work in academia is quite slow and quite linear. You have an idea. You put together a research proposal. You get it funded. You do the research. You write up the paper. You send it for peer review. You revise the paper. The paper gets published. You know, that process can take three years. Yeah? A policymaker wants three weeks. Those two things are not aligned, and we need to try to align those. So we, in the Policy Institute at King's, which I have the pleasure of um, heading up at the moment, have tried to take on those three T's directly. Now, avoid the temptation of doing an advertorial, but quickly summarise what we're doing to try to do that. So we really do try to work closely with the policymaking community to anticipate their needs so we can deliver timely and relevant policy research and analysis. We work very hard on building trusted partnerships, both institutional partnerships and individual partnerships. And we do that in various ways. We run events and conferences. It's nothing better than actually having a dinner with somebody. But we also started adopting models of co-teaching where we bring in policymakers to help teach on various classes. That develops trust and confidence. And we also spend a lot of time um, doing this translation question. We do a lot of that translation ourselves, um, but we also undertake lots of teaching and coaching and training of other academic colleagues on how to develop the messages, how to articulate their research in a way that the community will understand. So that moves me on to my third take-home message, that the translation of research to policy is messy and complicated, requiring skills that are not valued or abundant in universities. Now, if, we, if all of that sort of is reasonably coherent, and I think it is, I have to say that, for me at least, 2016 has been an incredibly turbulent year, because all the premise, all the logic that I've just built up has been shaken to its core. And I think we need to step back and try to understand what this sort of democratic revolution means to the role of universities in society and the role of universities specifically in that policy-making process. And I came across this fascinating quote 
by the president of Johns Hopkins University before Trump was elected, just to get the timing right. And he said, I think a lot of us are simply dumbfounded that we've seen the support that has been evidence for Mr. Trump. On the core issue of the role of ideas of facts and whether they matter in contemporary political discourse, we are observing something that is deeply unsettling. Have universities in the United States, and indeed internationally, been successful in mustering up analysis and policy recommendations that are able to infiltrate the political process and bring our practical ideas to bear? Have we been effective as institutions in producing a comprehensive package that could respond to these ideas and issues? And at face value, this concern was also highlighted by Michael Gove's comments in the EU referendum, when he infamously said, people in this country have had enough of experts. But I think it's also worth pointing out the full quote. As he went on to say, from organisations with acronyms, they saying that they know what is best and consistently getting it wrong. It is also worth recalling the quote I put up earlier on, which was from the Ministry of Justice when Michael Gove was Secretary of State. And it said, we will put evidence at the heart of what we do. This is like six months ago. So whilst I, and I have been, and many others, have been critical of Gove, I do think we need to be a bit more sophisticated in our reaction, as he was quoted somewhat out of context, has formed for wanting to use evidence to support policy making, and was clearly being politically opportunistic in what I think most of us would describe as a vile political debate around the referendum. So in short, I think we now need to move on from this blame game and return to what we're good at in universities, and that is to look at the evidence and reflect on what it means for us and what we can do going forward. So in that spirit, some more data. This is from the Institute for Government, based in London in the UK. And they undertook a representative sample of around 2,000 people in August this year and asked them their views on experts and on the use of objective evidence. And as you can see here, over 80% of respondents were saying they want politicians to consult experts and they want politicians to use and base their decisions on objective evidence. And it's interesting that there's also a slight increase, we don't get too excited by it, between 2014 and 2016. If you cut this data another way and you ask these respondents how they voted in the referendum, you do find some marginal differences, but even those who wanted to leave um, were around 80% in terms of um, supporting the use of evidence and expertise in decision making. So my fourth take home message it's quite simply, I don't believe that people have had enough of experts. People have not had enough of experts. And I think that's a really important message for us to take home. So that brings me on to the final theme of my talk. And that is to explore what all of this means in the context of so-called post-truth politics, as captured so visually on this economist a few months ago. And here I want to try to understand what is leading to this emergence of post-truth world and how, as universities, we should react to that. And in reading around these issues since June, I think one of the really interesting phenomena is the, of our time is the rise in social media. The Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism undertakes an annual review 
of journalism, of media, of newspapers, and it's just packed with data and information. And this figure comes from that review, and it looks at what the main source of news or evidence is by different age groups. And on the left-hand side here, for those at the back, that's social media, and that's TV. So we have two-thirds of young people, aged 18 to 24, saying that online is their main source of news, their main source of evidence. And then we have over half, 53% of old people, 55 plus, I'm not sure that's old, but um, in this study, um, 55 plus, um, saying the television is their main source of news. And this, if you look at this over time, this is trending. So shortly, the majority of news content will be delivered through social media. And in and of itself, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think the fact that information is being sourced by individuals for their own needs and for their own interests is an inherently good thing, and that should be celebrated. Let's not sort of critique social media. But one of the concerns around social media is that it's not regulated or it doesn't adhere to what you might call professional journalistic standards. And again, I think this is broadly a good thing. I think we are becoming citizen journalists in that phrase, and that's good. We should be um, celebrating that. But there is this dark side. We need to acknowledge that dark side. And recently, people have talked about fake news, um, the deliberate dissemination of false information. I'm not sure I like the, frame, the phrase fake news. I think it provides legitimacy. It's lying. Yeah? And we just say it. This is lies. This is about lies. Yeah? And we should really challenge that. But BuzzFeed is really interesting um, news deliver in its own right, works across many nations, did this fascinating analysis where they took nine Facebook pages. Three of them were mainstream, including CNN, and the other three were from what they termed hyper-partisan right-wing web pages and hyper-partisan left-wing web pages. And they looked at the veracity of the information on those um, posts. And they looked at over 3,000 posts. So this is quite a substantive piece of work. And they showed that 38% of all of the posts on the right-wing Facebook pages, and these are hyper-right-wing, let's make that clear, 38% of all the posts were either a mixture of true or false or mostly false, compared to 19% on the hyper-left-wing pages. So either side of that political spectrum, we have lies. Yeah? I'll stick to that language. The middle, the mainstream, um, the small bit over here, um, the 4.5%, it's because um, the researchers doing this cannot verify the claims in the um, mainstream Facebook pages. And this matters due to a phenomenon which people have called echo chambers. And this was recently looked at in a great study, again, in the proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences. And here the authors compared two types of Facebook pages. They looked at Facebook pages around conspiracy theories and looked at Facebook pages around scientific information. And they downloaded all the posts and interactions over five years. Again, a massive study. The data numbers here are ginormous. And they looked to see who was interacting with who. And they found absolutely no interactions between the people consuming conspiracy theories versus people consuming scientific information. What they did find was that the, two, the way information was consumed by those two groups was almost identical. The sort of half-life, if you like, of the information was almost identical. And it is this sort of homogeneous, homogeneous and then polarised views, which means that people are never interacting with each other. And this is what people have termed the echo chamber. So with the fragmentation of the media, with this sort of lack of editorial control, 
and this inability, if you like, to check the veracity of information. This is compounded by this idea that we're getting these echo chambers, we're moving into these polarized communities. And I think it's just worth reflecting on that, because when I was a kid, um, with my brother, we would watch the BBC six o'clock news in the living room with our parents. That was part of the evening ritual. And we would take that news to be the truth. Yeah? We may have arguments over the dinner table afterwards about what that news meant, um, and we did, but we took the six o'clock news to be the truth. There was one supply of news. And now we're moving into a world where there is this sort of massive supply of different types of news, different types of truths. And we need to, again, acknowledge that and think about how we're going to adapt to it. And I will come back to this point. So in my mind, you know, we could argue this is a threat for us as a sector, for us as universities. But I think it actually creates a massive opportunity in two ways. The first is that I think it's slightly ironic um, that Bill Clinton, or at least his campaign, coined the phrase, it is the economy stupid, back in 1992. And it seems to me that as we sort of are shifting in these epochs, that we need to acknowledge that now it is, the, it is education stupid. As I think, from the analysis I've presented, what we really need to be able to do is to enable the consumers of news to be able to think for themselves and differentiate between fact and fiction. Because we're not going to overturn the fragmentation of social media and news. We're not going to get rid of echo chambers. We're not going to be able to regulate news in the way that we've regulated media historically. So actually, this becomes a fundamental issue about who's using and consuming that information, and that's the individual. And it's got to be the responsibility of the individual to be able to differentiate between truth and lie. And that gets to education, and that gets to universities. Now, that may require a different way of doing things in universities, and I'm not going to touch on that, um, and I entirely accept that, but if ever there is a need for education, it is now. But when we come to our second mission, that of research, I think it's actually more, quite a different and actually more um, challenging issue. And it seems to me that in a lot of the debate we're in at the moment, we often conflate the role of elites with experts. And I've tried to capture this in this figure. In the top right-hand corner, we have our liberal elites, as the media now terms them. And that is everybody in this room, like it or not, you are probably part of this liberal elite. We're liberal elites because we got there based on merit. We have expertise. We're here offering that expertise. To the left in this figure, we have what I've termed unmeritocratic elites. So it's quite difficult coming up with the right terminology, as you can imagine, on this figure. And these are people who have positions of power but are spreading mistruths and lies. In the bottom right-hand corner, we have what I've termed a citizen expert. And on the left, and very uncomfortably, we have got what I've termed the civically disengaged. And I openly acknowledge this is too simplistic and may be offensive to some, so just bear with me as I go through this. The first thing I think we need to do as a sector is to challenge the lies, challenge those untruths that we hear in public discourse. And I don't think we're doing that, and I find it absolutely shocking. I'm relatively new to academia. I joined King's three years ago. Before that, I worked outside academia. And I think it's really striking how acquiescent we have been as a sector in listening to people lying and not challenging those lies. And if we don't defend that, then who is? Because what is the role of the university in this so-called post-truth society? So I think we really must be standing up and advocating 
point that pro-truth matters. And I think we should do that very loudly and unashamedly. And I think that needs a lot of commitment, a lot of resource, and a lot of effort. The second point is that we are doing a lot, and I do recognize this, to engage with the citizen experts. We have increased participation in universities dramatically over the past generation. We have active programs of widening participation and social mobility. And these are ever more important in this new world. And we need to acknowledge our success, but again, concentrate and do more and more in this area. But as I move on to the so-called disengaged group, I think it's really important that we actually start talking about breaking down both the barriers of elitism and the barriers of expertise. When you think about this, what do we actually mean by an expert? I'm standing here because I'm an expert in assessing research impact. That's a pretty narrow, dull view, you know, expertise. I like doing it. Um, but if my pipe leaks at home, I don't try to mend it. Well, I used to try to mend it. Now I've given up trying to mend it. I've learned that I will call an expert. I will call an expert plumber to come and mend my pipe. If my daughter is ill, I take her to see an expert. I take her to see an expert doctor to make her better. If my car breaks down, I take the car to an expert, an expert mechanic to fix the car. We are all experts, and we've got to start talking in that language. Everybody has got something to contribute. But we do need to, I think, revisit some of this agenda and think about our role as universities in creating a new, engaged, and potentially transparent way to formulate and deliver public policy. And I wanted to sort of illustrate this with a study, which I know you can't read at the back, um, about some work that colleagues at Rand Europe, where I used to work, did looking at a new um, treatment for, to prevent HIV. There are about 2 million people a year who get infected with HIV. And there is some scientific evidence, quite compelling scientific evidence, delivered through randomized controlled trials, that the use of antiretroviral drugs as a preventive way of reducing infection rates work. So you do the science, you do the RCT, it works. But when you go into the community, it doesn't. And so this study tried to understand why that was. And they went and, with a whole lot of collaborators, went and worked in different communities across the world, as you can see, and basically showed that it was the way that the scientific evidence was being framed in those local contexts. It was mistrusted. And as Desmond Tutu, um, who wrote the foreword to this final report, wrote in his board, all science is local. So those local truths, those local community interpretation of that scientific evidence was as, had as much veracity as the results of the randomized control trial. So we're shifting, if you like, from a post-truth politics to what I like to call a multiple truth politics. And those truths may or may not be anchored in, in sort of the evidence, but they are perceived by the recipients as being trusted facts, facts that are reinforced through these echo chambers of like-minded people. So as experts, we need to acknowledge this. We need to acknowledge these multiple truths, and we need to work with it. We need to improve the way that we communicate. We need to use social media to our advantage. So, my penultimate slide and my final message, if you like, is that universities have a lot to offer in this multiple truth world, but need to adapt to envision structure, process, and incentives to a new changing reality. Otherwise, we're at risk of becoming irrelevant. So what does that mean in the context of freedom and control, the theme of this conference? First, as I have said a number of times, I think we really have to advocate, we have to get on the front foot and demonstrate our value 
We have to campaign against people who are lying. Secondly, I think we should stop blaming others for the anti-intellectualism. I think there's been a sense of that. I think we need to move away from that. I've been guilty of that. I acknowledge that. I think we're likely to have to really think about how we diversify our education offerings. And as we sort of begin to acknowledge this multi-truth politics, we need to recognise that that is actually about multiple research disciplines working together to solve problems and bring solutions to society, going back to my graphics around the research excellence framework. And underpinning all of that, I, we need to understand that there is probably a new social contract that is starting to be formed, and we need to control that agenda and shape it to our benefit. So on that note, thank you very much.